Thank you for being here today. Some of you are giving more than a greeting. Uh, that's all right. It's good to, to see you today. Uh, if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Welcome to Destiny. If you're new here, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in God's Word this morning from the, the book of Romans chapter 8. This is our fourth week in our eight-week series going through the greatest chapter in the Bible. Amen? How many of you are discovering that uh, that is a true statement? Amen? That this is the greatest chapter in all of God's Word? I really believe that. And um, as we get into Romans chapter 8 today, uh, I want to lay a foundation for us uh, from John chapter 10. A foundation for us today from John chapter 10 and verse 10. Also Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you can open to both of those today. But before we get into God's word, why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, that we don't have to wander through life wondering which is the right way. You have shown us clearly in your word. Your word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, spoken out, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, the very words of God today. So Lord, as we come to your word, we, we come uh, uh, humbly, Lord, uh, as, a, as a student to be taught, as, as a, a son or daughter to be instructed. Lord, we want to hear from you today. Lord, we're thankful that your word has power that there is power in your word, Lord, that your word accomplishes something in our lives, that it does not return void, but it produces good fruit in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, that's our heart's desire today, that as we hear your word, Lord, that it would go deep into our hearts and that it would produce fruit in our life, the fruit of the Spirit manifest of love and joy and peace and goodness and even patience, Lord. Lord, that, that your work of, of redemption would con continue in our lives each and every single day as we walk with you daily. So speak to our hearts by your spirit today. Help us not to just be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but that we would be doers, putting your word into practice and action through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. John 10, 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full or have it more abundantly. Now, who is the thief? Well, Satan, the devil. And who is the I in this passage? Well, it's Jesus speaking. Jesus here paints this incredible picture, this incredible contrast between his work and what he came to do and what Satan is working for every single day in your life. Do you know that not only is God working in your life, but Satan is trying to work in your life as well? You know, God doesn't take a day off. You know, Satan doesn't take a day off either. The enemy comes, Satan comes only for one purpose, to steal from you, to rob from you 
your destiny, your purpose, your inheritance that belongs to you in Christ Jesus to kill you, to rob your life from you, the eternal life that Jesus Christ has purchased for you. He wants to rob you of it and kill you. And finally, destroy. How is it that destroy is after kill? It, it seems like kill should be further up or, or, or the last. There's, there are things that are worse than death. Satan's out to rob you. Because did you know your life continues after you, you're, you're gone? You have a legacy. You, you have a heritage. Satan wants to rob you of that too. He wants to destroy your legacy, destroy your heritage, see you ultimately with him under judgment for all eternity. This is all he's doing all the time, 24-7, only. You see, God has this perspective. God see, this is how God sees the world. Jesus says, I have come for the opposite reason, to give life. And not just a, an any old life, not just the life that's hanging on on life support. He says life to the full, life more abundantly, life that is overflowing. The contrast could not be greater. You see, God knows what we don't know. God sees things that we don't see. You know, Satan's not playing games. He's not uh, doing a dress rehearsal. Satan is out for blood. His soul and singular purpose, 24-7, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Think about that kind of focus pointed directly at you every single day. Spiritual forces, demonic powers, and you are in the crosshairs. You notice there's, there's no compromise between these two sides. There, there, there's no like middle ground where, where they can come together. It's not that, that they can come together and say, well, you know what? Satan says, you know what, I'm just out to give him a bad day today. I just want, I'm just out to, to just have him not have a good day. No, he's out to destroy your life. And, and he's not just working day by day. He, he's working 20 years out. He, he, he's got a long trajectory of, of how to lead you to destruction. He doesn't just show up with a big red suit and a long pointy tail and a pitchfork, follow me to damnation. Let's go, get on the bus, we're leaving. No, it's a day by day, moment by moment, lie by lie, subtle deception. The Bible says in Genesis chapter three that the serpent, Satan, was subtle in his temptation. He didn't show up in a big puff of smoke. I'm the Lord of darkness. No, he is subtle 
There is no compromise between these two sides. What Jesus is talking about here is literally life and death. And as we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, what we've seen is the apostle Paul also say that there is a huge contrast that exists between those who are born again by the Spirit of God and those who are not. Those who are, are, have no condemnation because of sin, because their sin has been laid upon Jesus Christ, and those who have not received the work of Christ through faith. Paul paints this picture of contrast, light and darkness between those who live in the flesh and those who live and walk according to the Spirit. You see, when God sees the world, he, he sees the world as black and white, good and evil, right and wrong, light and darkness, truth and lies. God is morally perfect, totally holy, completely righteous. There's no moral ambiguity with God. God's never sitting up there wondering, well, is this the right thing or not? What's the right thing to do in this? No, he is, he is 100% always morally perfect all the time. But we are not that way, are we? No, we we're morally compromised, aren't we? Every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every desire that we have, every action we take has been infected and affected by sin. And so when we see the world, we don't see the world in black and white. We see the world as, well, that's not so bad. I mean, it could be a lot worse. We, we, we see the world as, as, well, these are bad sins over here. And we'll just stay away from those. But this stuff over here, I mean, does God really care about this? That's not how God sees the world. That's not how God sees the world. Because God knows the ultimate end of every little sin is a bigger sin. And the end is stealing, killing, and destroying. See, God knows what we don't know. And so Paul has been painting this contrast for us, this picture for, for us. In verse 2 of chapter 8, we see that the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. I love that. In verse 4, we see that God's law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but who live according to the Spirit. In verse 6, he says, to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In verse 7 and 8, we saw that those who live in the flesh are hostile towards God and they cannot please God. In verse 9, we see that those who have the Holy Spirit belong to Jesus Christ. In verse 11, we saw that the Spirit who dwells in us, though our body is dying, that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life Resurrection life to our bodies. Amen. And so this contrast between living according to the flesh, which produces death, and living according to the Spirit, 
which produces life. And it brings us here to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. We'll start at this morning. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I would submit to you that all of us have too casual of an attitude towards sin. All of us, our attitude towards sin is, is too casual. It's too familiar. It's too accepting of sin. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, living out of that old sinful nature, living out of that Adamic sin nature, the, the fallen, broken that's still in our flesh, if we live according to this, what does he say will happen? You will die. We have too casual of an attitude. Paul's saying if you live according to the flesh, it's like drinking poison. You're going to die. But none of us keep poison in our cabinet. We, we don't keep strychnine next to the milk. If we saw one of our kids about to drink bleach, we'd jump on them, scream out, hey, stop, right? whatever, like, this is, this is deadly. And, and Paul says that sin in your life is like that. And we're, we're just so casual about it. Well, it's just a, li it's just a little sin. It's just a little, it's just a little lust. It's just, a, I don't get angry that much, it's just a little anger. It's just a little bitterness, it's just a little discontentment, it's just a little covetousness, it's just a little envy, it's just a little greed, it's just a little unforgiveness. Paul says to live according to the flesh is death. Sometimes we treat sin like a pet. Just kind of keep it over there. When people come around, we put it outside. We lock it up in the backyard. But we feed it enough to keep it alive and keep it around. And every once in a while, it jumps on us and makes us feel good. Paul says that if we live according to the flesh, it will produce death. Living according to the Spirit will produce life. You notice there's not like a third option here. Like, have, have you noticed this going through Romans 8? It's either one or the other. And there's no like third option. It's not like, you know, non-Christian, kind of lukewarm, casual Christian, and then like the super Christian. No, it's either a Christian or a non-Christian. And if you're a Christian, you... Live according to the Spirit, obviously. And if you're not, you live according to the... There, there's not like this third area. 
that I think we all sometimes want to be in. I'm not that bad. God doesn't really care. These two options here. And we look at this and we're like, that seems a little bit extreme. You know, Paul, he was just a, Paul was a fanatic, you know. Paul was just someone who just, he, he, he must have had a bad burrito that morning or something like. His donkey Uber broke down and just had a, had a bad day. There's no, there's no compromise here. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. And it, the reason, I, I, I submit to you again, the reason it, it seems extreme to us is because we are morally compromised beings. The, the reason it seems extreme to us is because we compromise with sin. The, the reason it seems extreme to us is because if we took it seriously, it would have very real implications for the way we live our lives. And so we think, well, I mean, I sin all the time and I don't die. So this must not be true. If, if I do this, am I going to die? Do you know where that line of reasoning comes from? Your flesh. This idea of, well, if I do this, can I still get into heaven? Man, I, that's not my aim, Right? My aim is not to just like barely fall over the threshold of heaven, you know, clothes singed with fire from hell and smoke all over me. <sighs> oh, I made it. Whew. I was the last one in. <sighs> wow, that was close. That, that's not the goal. This idea of, if you do that, it's not going to kill you. Do you know where that comes from? Have you read Genesis chapter 3? Have you read Genesis chapter 3? God tells them, do not do this. Satan comes along. Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you disobey God, go your own way, do your own thing? You don't want to live under God's law. He's such an overbearing God. Find your own path. Follow your own heart. Just as long as it's not what God wants, you do it. And Eve says to the serpent, yeah, but if we eat of this tree, God says we're going to die. What does Satan say? You're not going to die. It's not going to kill you. God's just trying to keep good things from you. God knows if you eat of it, you'll really be happy. God doesn't want you to be happy. The lies of the enemy, still the same lies that he's speaking to us today. And so they take it and they eat it. And what happens? Not, not only do they die, but every other human being who will ever live has died. Through Adam's sin, death has come into the world. Every, every moment of suffering, every moment of pain, every moment of agony, every child that has been taken early 
Every disease, every sickness, every illness is a result of that sin. They believe the lie that they wouldn't die. Sin produces death in your life. And so God here tells us that we must, by the Spirit, put sin to death. In the, in the King James Version, it says that we must mortify sin. We must declare war on sin in our lives. Every sin, even the smallest, what we would consider the smallest sin, we must declare war on. We must put it to death. Galatians 5.24 says that we must crucify the flesh and with its lusts. Now, as, as people, human beings in this fallen world, as long as we are in the world, we will face the reality of indwelling sin. How many of you have experienced that? Even though you're a Christian, even though there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, we, we still face the reality of indwelling sin within our members, within our body, within our flesh. And so because of that, it always has to be killed. It always has to be mortified. It always has to be put to death. The, the killing of sin in the life of a believer is a daily job that we have to do. Every day we wake up and say, I'm going to kill sin today. Sin no longer is a pet that I'm going to nurture and feed and take for walks every once in a while. No, sin is a ferocious animal that will kill me if I let it grow. And so I'm taking it outside and I'm putting a bullet in its brain. I am slitting its throat. I am strangling it. I am starving it, because if I don't, it will kill me, and it will steal from me what God has for me, and it will rob me and my family of everything that God has, because Satan is only out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And just because it doesn't happen tomorrow or happen overnight... We think, well, it's, it's not really doing, it's, it, it, nothing happened, nothing bad happened. God didn't strike me dead. His mercy and grace, he could have. He would have been totally righteous and just to have. But his grace and his mercy wooing us back, his love, but his expectation for us is that we would be by the Spirit every day, daily going to war with the sin that is in our lives. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, It is our duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Peter 3.18, that we should be growing in grace every single day. 2 Corinthians 4.16, renewing our inward man day by day. Every single day is a fight. Every single day is a battle. And if you're not fighting, you are losing. If you're not fighting, you 
are losing. Every single day, we go to war with sin. Does it take a day off for you? It doesn't for me. It didn't for Jesus. Every single day, we go to war with sin. This is what John Owen, who was the 17th century, one of the great Puritan theologians of the 17th century, this is what he said. The choicest of believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin. How many of you, that describes you? I am, I am a Christian, I am a saint, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am free from condemnation, amen. How many, that describes you. In response to that, he says, we ought to make it our business all the days of our lives to mortify the indwelling power of sin. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is no third option. There is no middle ground. And we must do it by the Spirit. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't white knuckle it in our flesh. We can't put the flesh to death. It's not about willpower. It's about Holy Spirit power in your life. We, we can't do it without him, but listen to this. He won't do it without us. We work with the Spirit, submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to allow him to deal and kill the sin in our lives. Why is God so angry against sin? Because sin produces death, and God loves you. Hello? James 1, 14 to 15. Each person who is tempted, he's tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. We see a little bit of lust, a little bit of envy, a little bit of greed, a little bit of unforgiveness, bitterness, a little bit of anger, and we think, ah, it's no big deal. Who's it hurting? It's just me. It's just my personal thing. L listen, it, it's, if you feed it, it's going to grow. Hello? If you feed it, it's going to grow. You, you think that lust is just going to stop with a, a, a wandering eye? No, if you feed it, it's going to grow. It's going to turn into pornography. It's going to turn into por pornographic addiction, sex addiction. It's ultimately going to lead to adultery, which will destroy your life, will destroy your family. Steal, kill, destroy. It's what Satan is after. This is why Jesus says anyone who, who looks lustfully on a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Because it... it Jesus doesn't see it, God doesn't see any distinction between the seed and the fruit. He knows where it's going. He knows what it's going to produce in our lives. You need to realize that sin will grow if you don't kill it. We see this so clearly in the life of David, right? David and Bathsheba, a lustful look turns into adultery, turns eventually into murder. 
following the pathway of sin. David never intended to kill that man. But when he saw the woman, he should have turned away. He should have looked away. He should have crucified the flesh. And this is the pattern of sin. We need to realize that sin grows. The devil is not playing games with you. So why are you playing games with sin? Sin will rob you of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I'll say that again. Sin will rob you of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces love, joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction in our lives. When I sin, when I lust, when I envy, when I uh, belittle, when I have bitterness in my heart, you know what it robs me of? It robs me of the Spirit's work in my life. You wonder why you have no love in your marriage. Are you harboring lust somewhere? Where, where, are, where are you giving in to sin, and how is that robbing you of the Spirit's work in your life? You must put to death sin by the Spirit. If you do, Paul says, if you do, those who put to death sin will live. Do you want to live? Do you want the abundant life? Not just the getting by life, not just the "Mm, it's okay life, not just the well, I'm alive, but I wish I had their life. No, the abundant, eternal, overflowing, full of love and joy and peace and contentment life. Do you want that life? Paul says, if you want that life, put sin to death. Put sin to death. Go on war. Declare war against sin. If you will put sin to death by the Spirit, you will experience this eternal and abundant life that Jesus brought. A life that is lived to the fullest is a life that, by the Spirit, kills sin. So then the question is, well, how do we do it? How do we kill sin in our lives? And thankfully, we have the next few verses that are going to tell us how to do it. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a companion passage to this verse in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And Paul writes there that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. There's a powerful, powerful revelation here. Paul says that God sent his son Jesus to redeem us. The word redeem means to purchase back. That we as humanity are image bearers of God, but because of sin, the Bible says that we are enslaved to sin. That we, the human race without Christ, is enslaved to sin, enslaved to the powers of darkness, literally slaves of the kingdom of Satan. But Jesus came to redeem, to purchase us back. To purchase us back. And he did it with his own life, with his own blood. The picture that Paul paints is, is of, of someone being auctioned off as a slave. And here comes God the Father who takes that slave. He says, I will, I will pay for him. But when he purchases that slave, he, he doesn't keep him as a slave. He says, he takes him from the slave auction down to the courthouse. And he says, I'm now adopting this slave as my son. He, he's no longer a slave. He's now my child. He, he's not... He, I didn't buy him to serve me. I bought him to have fellowship with me, to, to share in my life and in, in my glory and, and to share what I have with him, to make him an heir of my estate, redeemed, purchased back, adopted into God's family, no longer a slave and, and what, because of, of the way sin works, sometimes we, we think of God in the wrong way. We think of God in terms of a slave master, as an owner. We have all these wrong ideas about God. And, and what Paul says here in, in, in Romans and in Galatians is that you did not receive the spirit of slavery. God didn't purchase slaves. He redeems sons and daughters. It's a huge difference. It's a massive shift. He says, you don't have to fall back into fear. You don't have a spirit of, of slavery. A slave is, is in fear of his master. But you're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. What that means is that you don't have to be invited into the presence of the master, that you can always walk into the presence of your father. You don't need a special invitation. God is saying, you're my children. You want to spend time with me? I have infinite time. Sons and daughters of God, not a spirit of slavery that leads us to fear, but a spirit of adoption. As sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Too many times we tried to serve God from a slave mentality. So, so the disciples come to Jesus in, in Luke chapter 11, and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. 
And what does Jesus teach them? How does he teach them to pray? Our Father. He says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. Now, this is is amazing because Jesus could have taught us to pray like this. Our Lord. Our Lord. Or he could have taught them to pray with with the, the name that God had given to the Israelites. The covenant name. Yahweh, Jehovah. But just as weird as it is when my kids call me by my name, that's not the kind of relationship that we have with God. We're not on a first name basis. We're beyond that. He's our father. He's our dad. He's watching out for us. We're his kids. I've got four kids. I love them more than anything. Do you know why I love my kids? Is it based on their performance? No. (laughs) Is it because they're so wonderful all the time? No. Is it because they're always lovable? No. Is it because they do everything I say all the time, always perfectly? Absolutely not. Is it because they do anything for me? No. In fact, my kids do nothing for me. (laughs) I do everything for them because I love them. But do you know why I love them? One reason, because they're my kids. I love my kids because they're my kids. They're mine. Do you know why God loves you? Because you're his kids. Because you're his. It's not because your performance. It's not because you do everything perfectly all the time. It's not because you come to church three out of four Sundays a month. I love you because of that. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, no, it's because you're his. It's because you're his. And this realization, it changes everything. If, if, if you could only understand that you're not a slave, but you're a son. If you if you're only understand that you're not working for a master, you're working with your father. It changes everything about the way we view God. You know, I give my kids direction. I give my kids instruction. You, you know that every single direction and instruction and command that I give to my children, do you know why I do it? It's for their good. Every single one. I I never give my kids a direction that I know is going to lead them to harm. I never instruct them into something that's not for their good. Everything I tell them to do, it's for what? It's for their good. And I am imperfect, vastly. But our Father in heaven is totally perfect 100% of the time, never fails. Jesus, in in Luke chapter 11, he goes on to say, listen, which of you will go to your father and ask for a piece of bread, and instead your father is going to give you a snake? Which of you will go to your father and ask for a fish to eat for lunch, and he's going to give you a scorpion? He says, no. He says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven? How much more perfect is his direction and instruction in our lives. But we view him as 
we, we, ha- we carry with us sometimes this slave mentality, and we think of him as a taskmaster, and so we think of his instructions and his laws and his commandments not as blessings in our lives, but as a burden. But if we can only have the understanding that he is our father and that he loves us more than anything, that he's always loved us, he'll always love us, and the only reason he gives us any instruction or direction or quote-unquote command is for our good, it changes the way we see everything. Now, all the time I give my kids direction and instruction that they don't understand, all the time. Why do I have to do this? I don't understand. We, We can't get our kids to brush their teeth. It's like... And there's four of them, and so there's four mouths, and there's only two of us, and so it's just this constant war. World War III, it's time to brush our teeth, you know, my goodness. Why do I have to brush my teeth? I can reason with them, I can explain. If you don't, your teeth are going to rot. If you don't, they're going to die and fall out. You're going to look like you're from Alabama, you know. (laughs) Just, it's a joke. It's a joke. Come on. Come on. Come on. So, if you're from Alabama, God bless you. I've got a good dentist I can refer you to. Uh, It's a joke. It's a joke. So, the person from Alabama gets up and leaves. So, the the thing is, though, we give them instruction that they don't understand. It's beyond their ability to comprehend. And so there's lots of things in the Bible that I'm instructed to do that I don't understand. There's things I'm instructed to do. I I don't see how it's going to pay off. I don't see how. But you know what? You know what I invite, you know what I ask my children to do when they don't understand? I say, would you trust me? Would you just trust me? Have I not proven to you by my track record of taking care of you and loving you and serving you and feeding you and clothing you and housing you for the last eight, six, four, or two years of your life, can you not not tell that I've got a a track record of trying to steer you in the right direction? Can you just trust me? Can you trust my heart? Can you trust my character? And that's what God asks from us. When we don't understand, when we don't see how it pays off, when we don't see how this is a bad thing, yet in his word it says so clearly, you know what God invites us to do? He says, would you trust me? You know what the Bible calls that? Faith. You know what God says? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So how do you view your relationship with God? Is he distant? Are you constantly trying to win his favor by performing for him? Or are you a son? Are you a daughter? Do you know that your Father in heaven always has loved you and always will? You know, this word here, Abba, you know how that would really be translated? It's the word daddy. It's the word daddy. It's like a small child who cries out for their daddy when they're in trouble. Did you know this word cry? This this word, it says that we cry out, Abba, Father. This word cry is the word that is used when Jesus cried out on the cross. It's a word that's used when blind Bartimaeus cried out for Jesus for help. It's the word used when the demoniac was filled filled with demons and cried out for relief. It's this It's this word of intense emotion, under intense pressure. 
And so when life hits, as it does, we cry out, Daddy. We run to our Father. Now, it sounds weird if we pray, Dear Daddy God, and that just sounds strange. It sounds strange to our ears. So, you know, just please don't do that. But um, <laughs> if you want to do that at home, that's great. But he is. This is the idea that's being communicated, that God is our Father. And we are his little kids. You know, yesterday my two sons were playing in the backyard, and I was doing something in the garage, and they started fighting, and one of them hit the other one, and so Asher runs to me, crying, Daddy. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because he knows that I can fix it. He knows that I have the power when there's been injustice, when things didn't go right. He knows that I can make it right. And so it says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. How does he do that? When things don't go right, do you cry out to God? Dad, Father, I need your help. This is how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. You know who doesn't cry out to Father when things go wrong? People who aren't his kids. Non-Christians don't cry out, Father God. Have you noticed that? They might cry out, oh God, up there somewhere, help me. But it's only Christians that know Jesus is, know God as the Father. It's only Christians who cry out, Father in heaven, would you help me? How does the Spirit bear witness with our spirit? It's that we cry out, Abba, Father. Because we know that he is an ever-present help in time of need. And we know that deep down, even though our thinking might always be right, that he is our Father and that we are his kids and that he can help us. And so this changes how we put to death sin in our lives when we understand that the laws of God, the commandments of God, they're not put into our lives by a, a slave master who's trying to keep good things from us, but a loving father who's trying to protect us from death. And so he says, warning, warning, warning. This leads to death, this leads to death, this leads to death, this leads to death. But this way leads to life and life more abundantly and eternal and blessed and wonderful and fruitful if you will walk with the Spirit. So this is how we do it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by using the Word of God, by crying out for God's help. So in conclusion today, as a son or a daughter of God, have you declared war on sin in your life? Go to war against sin. What sin have you secretly been taking care of, nurturing? It's not a big deal. It's just over here. Kill it. Destroy it. Starve it. Put it to death. Because if you don't, because if you don't, it will kill you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to our hearts. We thank you for your power in our lives. Lord, we could not do anything in our own strength. Lord, we could do nothing without you, but with you on our side as your kids. You give us everything, heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. That means what is his belongs to me. So Lord, we do not work for your approval, 
But we work to serve and to, to live and to, to experience the eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus. So Lord, help us through the power of your spirit to uproot sin in our lives. Lord, where we've, where we've gone cold or, or where the Holy Spirit's conviction is not as strong anymore, Lord, that, that through your word you would convict us of sin, through, through your spirit again we would be sensitive to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit and that daily we would go to war against sin and that we would put it to death in our lives and that we would experience the life, the life more abundantly, the eternal life. Lord, that our relationships would be filled with love, that our homes would be filled with peace, that you would lead us, Lord, beside still waters as you restore our soul. Father, help us by your spirit. We cannot do it in our own strength, but with you, we can do it. With you, we are victorious. Because you are victorious, you have defeated Satan and the powers of darkness that are broken in our lives. Thank you for the work of your spirit that produces this life in us. We give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.